The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Amy Daniels McClure. I'm a registered nurse with a doctorate in nursing focused on rehabilitation and a clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today we welcome Dr. Anita Socolo, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine, University of California. Clinically, Dr. Socolo currently serves as a medical director of the Motility Disorders Program and Program Director of Neurogastroenterology and Motility Fellowship Training Program at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. As a leader and mentor in the GI motility clinical space, Dr. Socolo teaches with a passion not only for kids that she treats, but a deep passion to educate and support clinicians around the country to help all kids with neurogenic bowel dysfunction reach better clinical outcomes and achieve better quality of life. It's an honor to get to talk with Dr. Anita Socolo today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Socolo. Thank you for having me again, Amy. It's so good to have you back. Um, Today, we're going to focus on something a little bit different. I know in the first two podcasts, we focused a lot on bowel management in general. You talked a lot about um, neurogenic bowels versus non-neurogenic bowel dysfunction. And you had mentioned that there were some new um, ways to treat bowel dysfunction. And I know in one of in the last podcast, you actually mentioned transanal irrigation. So today we're going to spend this podcast talking about what that is um, and really giving you, you an opportunity to talk about um, and teach what that is. So we're excited to have you on. Um, we know that bowel dysfunction affects about 30% of children, leading to significant negative outcomes in their quality of life as well as clinical outcomes. Transanal irrigation has become an accepted treatment option for kids with um, neurogenic bowel dysfunction who do not respond to those conservative treatments that we've talked about. Can you describe what transanal irrigation is and how it works to help these kids manage their bowels more effectively? Yeah, so there are many options for children with neurogenic bowels. And as you mentioned, transanal irrigation is one of the cornerstones of our therapies for many of our patients. Um, with transanal irrigation, we can offer them the options including like a gravity-based system or a pump-based system. Both type of, types of systems really allow for colonic irrigation in their most basic form. And we know that especially with pump-based systems, uh, we are now more likely to be successful with instilling fluid up to the transverse colon in a matter of minutes. That sounds like a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And historically, um, you know, I know we all have had experience with this, that um, gravity-based systems like cone enemas, take much longer to instill. They're cumbersome. They're messy for kids and their families. It's a lot of equipment to take with them. So in addition to saving time on the toilet, uh, the pump-based system also has an advantage that it allows for a single like hand use if you need that. Um, usually earlier independence for many of our patients, if that's what they're seeking. And it's also more portable. So now it can allow families to travel with ease like go to activities, enjoy time with less fear of like bowel incontinence wherever they go. And we've seen that kids can attend school with less support even from the school and less anxiety that they're going to have accidents at school, which is a, a, a huge bonus. Now, those all sound like really big things. You said independent. So the, are the kids able to be more independent with the pump-based systems? Yes, they absolutely are. So I recently had a wonderful um, teenage boy whom I have the pleasure of taking care of. 
And he came to me with like a lot of anxiety and fear with stooling, especially at school, mostly because it was so unpredictable and so messy for him. Uh, his mom was actually driving to school and assisting him with his diaper changes as a teenager and cleaning wow. up his soiling accident. So you can just imagine uh, yeah, how yeah. horrible <laughs> that was. So when I asked why he didn't receive more support from school, he said that, oh, the bathrooms are not suitable or he was uncomfortable um, having like another woman kind of nurse at school right. take care of him or provide care for him. He was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. So after visiting with me, we discussed a few options. We talked about what his goals are and what his family's goals are. And then we collectively actually decided on a pump-based system for him to give it a trial to see how he would do. And then I saw him to train him. And then we had a few visits to adjust his regimen. And then within a few months, he was continent. And his Aww. family, especially, I know. <laughs> like, That's awesome. Was, so you can imagine his mom was so grateful. And he didn't have any more interruptions in his school day, right? Like there was right. no more odors to mask. His mom didn't have to drive back and forth to school. The stress of that, like she won back all that time also for wow. herself. And he's now learning how to perform the, the irrigations on his own. Really, that's his goal. So he wants to become completely independent of that in the evenings in the restroom for himself. So that's like a true success story for what a successful bowel program can achieve, not just for the kid but really for the whole family and really the, his community. So think about the school, his friends, all of yeah. that in a, in a larger form. Well, and I know school nurses are very hard to come by these days. So um, even if he wanted to count on a nurse, I think that would be a problem. So that's amazing that he's able to get that much control that quickly. That's good. So I know um, just kind of piggybacking off that story, you talked a lot about how transanal irrigation though isn't for everybody and that it requires a partnership between you and the patient and the family. And I've heard you say that you almost require a kind of like a contract before you start TAI. So can you talk to us about what that involves? (laughs) Yeah, I'm like a little tough. (laughs) So absolutely. So without having like your patient buy-in and the family buy-in, it's really difficult to be successful. So I really um, spend a significant amount of time upfront ensuring that and making sure that our expectations are on the same page. I really have like candid, straightforward conversations, And mm-hmm. I say, look, these are the potential pitfalls. And I discuss like realistic timelines. As soon as we do the irrigation, when you go home, it's not going to be 100% successful. You're going to need to come back for visits with me so we can adjust and, and modify things and really look at where you're having problems so that we can understand where to make the fixes. So I make sure it's a mutual partnership between me the patient and the parents or their caretakers. Really, that's the most important foundation that you need to establish. And then we all have our own roles, right? Like, and we need to make sure we have set up what the guidelines for those roles are, right? Like for me, my role is to make sure they're successful and I adjust things and I optimize things to the best of my ability. And my goal is for them to have continence. Their parents' role might be either to do the irrigation or to provide support and give them time. And, you know, mm-hmm. when that kid is upset and doesn't want to do it one evening or tired to make sure that they're motivating their child to be compliant. And really the kids, it's really allowing somebody to either do the irrigations or taking it on um, for themselves to be able to do it every night. It's quite a bit of a commitment. So as you said, I'm a little bit of a tough cookie when it comes <laughs> to this. So if the patients are not compliant, I stop. I stop. I stop the orders. I stop the irrigations. And then we wait until they are, or maybe they're not. And this isn't the system for them or the option for them. And we would discuss that. 
So it's always reassessing their compliance, making sure we're on the same page in terms of goals for treatment at each visit. And that this is something we want kids to be able to have for a lifetime. Right. So we don't want to lose them. We don't want to lose that partnership early on, like via force or having a bad experience with it early on. So that's really important to gauge as well. Well, that that contract probably helps avoid all that. At the Most of the time, yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So are there certain things that you look at um, regarding patients that you actually even begin to look at or, or select patients that might be good candidates for the pump-based transanal irrigation system? This is like a great question, and I think a really important one for us to think about before we start a program for one of our patients. Not every patient is appropriate for transanal irrigation. So when I first evaluate patients, I perform a very detailed screening before I make any promises or commitments um, to what type of program or what type of transanal irrigation we're going to offer. And historically, patients should have previously been tried on oral medications, as we know, and failed or have had like suboptimal results, so maybe not fully failed, but it's not working for them at home. So this also gives me a sense of if they're going to be compliant with my recommendations. Have they listened previously to what I've asked them to do and and trusted me? So that's an Mm -hmm. important part to kind of gauge as well. So um, typically, I also do some sort of anatomy evaluation, especially in our kids that have like spinal lesions or anal rectal malformations. This is an important part of, I think, um, the evaluation. So especially if I don't have surgical records or if this part is not previously known, I think it's really important. And so I perform like barium enemas or maybe some other imaging, depending on what the kids' issues are, to understand their unique anatomy. So you might Mm -hmm. see that maybe someone's scoliosis or their sacral uh, anomaly um, had like a huge impact on the shape or the contour of their distal colon. And you didn't know that, right? Like that would affect how how you do the irrigation. Mm -hmm. Or maybe if you had a kid with anal rectal malformation, or other prior surgeries down there that they had adhesions or narrowing that you might not be aware of. So these are all important things for us to establish up front to make sure mm-hmm. that we're anticipating these things and then we modify the programs as we need to. And then of course, since I'm a motility specialist and it's mm-hmm. like readily available to me and I'm so comfortable with it, I also perform anal rectal manometries in many of these patients. It actually gives me a great deal of information. It tells me about their tone, their sphincter anatomy, sensation, their ability to squeeze and bear down. And with that information, I feel like I can set up a much better regimen for them and much better expectations for them. So this is not a must, but I think it's a huge bonus. And we're kind of moving towards that in, in, in many centers that have the capacity to do this. And I think it gives us great information. Um, and so you've talked before, uh, Dr. Socolo, about that anorectal um, manometry and that most clinics are doing that across the country now. So if, even if a clinician doesn't have access to that at their clinic, um, they may be able to refer out just for that test. Is that correct? Yeah, there's many centers nationally that offer the testing. So we can partner up with centers close to us to kind of help us perform these studies. And it doesn't mean that you're going to lose your patient to that center. It's a matter of just getting the information and if you trust Mm -hmm. the center, having conversations or letting them know what you need from that type of data and having that information sent back to you so you can um, interpret it for your patient and adjust your regimen based on that. Because you found that information to be invaluable, right, while you're making your treatment plans? I think so. And I've come in my practice, I think that it helps me better understand the anatomy and the function for each Mm -hmm. patient. Um, and all my patients are not the same. And I always say, even just with, you know, our traditional spina bifida patients, they're not all the same, even though they have the same lesion on paper, 
they are not the same. So understanding that to the fullest, if we have the capacity or ability to do that, I think is helpful. That's great. So um, thank you for that explanation on what TAI is. Um, I know that throughout the literature, it's suggested that patients actually come in and get a training prior to starting TAI. And I think that training starts with you you in the clinic. Um, what do you do to get your patients and your family ready for a training, a training day? So I take this part um, seriously for my kids. And even before they step into the clinic for a training day, I make sure that all my patients, all of them, have had an adequate bowel clean-out, first and foremost. And our entire staff is trained on that. So they know the, the utmost importance that I place on that. So um, sometimes it takes like one or two visits prior to the training or a few phone calls to ensure that everything is completed. And I get imaging to ensure that this is all done um, appropriately as well. Um, so without a proper clean out, we know, we know prior to training that there's an increased risk of perforation. And we wanna make sure that we reduce all these risks as much as possible for our patients. Right. It's also important that the cleanout is done because it helps the irrigation program be more successful, right? You're not chasing your tail all the time like, oh, could this be an impaction or could this be because it's failing? You really know, listen, the cleanout part, there's no impaction, there's no obstruction in the colon. This is happening for another reason. And it really helps us get the water higher up in the colon, which mm-hmm. um, helps us get a better irrigation, which helps us get to success and, and um, continence much faster for our patients. And in my practice, after a clean-out is done, all patients are started on a maintenance oral laxative regimen, initially at least. And I discussed this with my patients and their families up front, that they must continue this, that this is the expectation, and that we're trying to optimize things, and this is part of, you know, the plan. And is there a reason why, when you, when you talk to patients, because I know I've heard patients say, well, this is supposed to get me cleaned out. Why do, why do I need to do a clean-out? What's your response to that when families say that? Yeah, so I sometimes, you know, use visual aids to explain it to them as well. And I think that's sometimes helpful for them mm-hmm. to understand that although the system is very effective in emptying the colon, I always use the analogy of like a pump-based system is not a water jet, right? It's not <laughs> right. like going in there like, like breaking up all the big hard balls of stool. So I, I compare it to like a stream. So it's, it's, you know, water with some pressure in there. It'll move the soft, sandy soil at the bottom of the stream. It's not going to move those big, hard boulders. Those boulders are going to stay there. And we need to make sure that those boulders are removed prior to starting the system so that the stream is empty and we can move the soft, Mm. sandy soil, or in our case, the the stool, easier. And that offers us a better chance at continence much faster. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And And then that probably goes along with why you keep them on the oral meds as well? Yeah, absolutely. So initially they need to stay on it. And then over time, as things are optimized and going well, we then discuss tapering. Okay, that's great. Um, so then they come in, so you get them ready. Um, you do you do the cleanouts, you get the imaging, and then they come in with your team and train with you guys the day, the, um, the first time they use the product. Is that correct? Yeah. So once all those basics are kind of taken care of, the patient and their caretaker or whoever's going to help them at home, come into the clinic for a full hands-on training. Um, They're taught like the basics, they're taught how to troubleshoot any uh, problems that we might anticipate. Um, They get a digital exam that's performed to ensure the vault is clear and has remained clear since their clean out. And then um, we assess how many pumps they need. We talk about the volumes for irrigation. We calculate those out with them. And then we head to the training restroom as we call it, where we have the hands-on portion. 
So parents, uh, if it's appropriate, are in the room with us with the patient or the patient on their own is taught how to correctly place the catheter either on the toilet or the commode, depending what they're gonna be using at home. And then we talk about positioning and then we start instilling the water and we talk to our families and patients uh, about what to expect, what they're gonna feel and what they're gonna see once the irrigation is completed. And then before they go home, we make sure everybody's comfortable and that they have close follow-up to make sure like if we need to make any adjustments. So it sounds like that training with you is pretty important. You guys do a lot of troubleshooting to make sure this is going to be successful when they go home? Yes, we do. So um, although the training is pretty thorough, we always tell families that prior to going home, actually, that they, they might experience some difficulties. And, it's, mm-hmm. and it's common to experience some difficulties, but um, the team is always available to answer the questions and troubleshoot with them. And of course, if there's something more complex going on before the next follow-up, they come into clinic and then we troubleshoot again. And then do they keep coming back to use it or do they use it on their own then after that first training day? So after their first training day, they go home, they start working on the system um, and we set up follow-ups. So typically it's for us, it's one month after their initial training to see them to make sure everything is going well. Okay. With that visit as well, we start pacing it out every three months and then every six months as appropriate. Wow. And once again, your goal is complete continence, correct? Oh, yes. A hundred percent. And That's it's possible. Awesome. That's so that awesome. should be our goal. Um, so I know that there's clinicians that are going to be listening to this, and I know um, there's going to be some questions about the water. So if you don't mind, Dr. Socolo, talking a little bit about um, what temperature that water is. And you and I keep saying water, and I'm sure there's some that are going, well, there's no way they're talking about water, water. Um, <laughs> so what kind of um, solution you use? Um, I know you kind of went on a journey from adding stuff to the water to now you just use tap water. So if you can kind of spend some time on the water as, um, and then finish with how, how much water you use on your kiddos. Okay, sure. So um, the water temperature um, should really be the same as body temperature. In fact, I tell my patients that it should be the same temperature as like the inside of your wrist. So okay. if you hold your wrist under the faucet, you shouldn't be able to tell the difference if the water is cooler or warmer than that. And your okay. systems have a temperature indicator, a sticker on them um, that can also ensure that the water temperature is appropriate. Um, and yeah, the volume of the irrigation is really weight dependent. So especially in pediatrics, we um, approximately use 10 ml per kilo, uh, up okay. to a maximum of a liter of, an, <clears throat> excuse me, of irrigation per day. So of course, you know, this is a rough estimate. So you have to take into account your patient's anatomy, um, mm-hmm. their tolerance, and, um, you know, initially there's some anxiety. So kids might be fearful first off the bat until they use the system a little bit, and that's okay. So initially during the training, uh, and even into like the first few months, I'm sorry, weeks after the training, the patients may notice that they cannot meet their goal volume, which mm-hmm. we say is completely expected. Okay. Um, so we tell them at home to increase as tolerated by 50 to 100 ml over the next two, three days until they're able to reach their goals or as tolerated. So and you find that over time they're able oh, to? I'm sorry, I didn't yes, interrupt you. But. Usually, usually most patients are. So if okay. they are irrigating appropriately and they're really getting the volume into the lumen of the colon, so we'll talk about that a little bit in terms of troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're able to get the uh, the volume of the fluid into the lumen and not just the rectum, usually this is not an issue for most most patients. Okay. 
So as you said, yes. So absolutely. Tap water is perfectly fine. And it's really like the best irrigation fluid that we have. It's cheap. It's safe. It's readily available. So it makes it like so convenient for our patients and their families. And then, um, yeah. So some of our counterparts, even myself initially, think that it needs to be performed with either sterile water or normal saline. But this is not the case. So with retrograde or rectal irrigation, we actually don't anticipate any of the irrigation fluid being retained um, after the completion of, of the regimen. So tap water is totally fine. It's safe. It's economical. It's readily available. You don't have like a kid in a dorm room mixing up like saline bottles. I was just thinking that actually. <laughs> I was like, can you imagine a college kid trying to make saline? Ugh. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. You don't need it. You don't need it. No. So um, some people need to wean themselves off of that mm -hmm. and that's okay. And some kids come to me already on saline and I'll leave them on for a little bit and then we'll start talking about, you know, taking it off and so that's okay too, but it's not necessary. It's an added cost. It's an added inconvenience and it's, it, you don't have to worry about it. Okay. So how long have you been using, um, you, you've been using tap water for quite a few years, haven't you? Yeah, I think at least, um, gosh, let's see, nine years now. Yeah. Eight to nine years I've been just using tap water in the irrigation. Um, there are some people that also like to add some additives to the bag. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I've tried that with kids that have had some trouble with their irrigations. And it doesn't mean you can't use it, but I don't find that it's very effective, especially if you take care of all the other things, um, as I mentioned, like the cleanouts and the bowel regimens and the compliance and the positioning. I haven't really needed to do that uh, much anymore. But initially, when I first started my practice, I did try those things, mm -hmm. um, adding stimulants or soaps and things like that. Um, into the bag, but it dilutes it so much that I don't, I don't think they're very beneficial, okay. um, but that is another common question that I'm asked. Well, and there's no dwell time with pump-based systems, correct? So the water doesn't, right. it doesn't really have right. time. The medication doesn't, yeah. that's right. If you add any medication or additive, it's not sitting in the colon to really work. It's really just in and then out. It's really an irrigation is what we're focused on. Okay. So we know, as just as you and I have been talking here, that treating bowels is not straightforward. So as we could expect, something that's going into their rectum and we're trying to irrigate, that there's probably um, trouble troubleshooting that comes up. And um, what are three, what are the top three, because I'm sure there's a lot, three things that you face um, on these actual training days with the patients? And what suggestions do you um, have for treating them? Yeah, so even though we're making sure that we complete like a thorough training with each patient and their families mm -hmm. um, prior to the start of their program, they may still need some adjustments. They might need some troubleshooting. In fact, they will, they will. Um, so that should be expected and that should be discussed, right? It's not a one and done and then we'll see you never. It's right. we need to keep adjusting to make sure what their body needs, what their needs are, what their schedules are, all of those things need to be um, worked through. So a very common complaint that we get is that the balloon is popping out. So parents will call and say, oh, the balloon is popping out. We're so frustrated. We can't keep it in or we have to hold it in. So this is actually um, a multi-pronged issue sometimes. So it may be um, that the balloon dislodgement is that it's not in the optimal position in the rectal bulb. So in kids um, with dilated bulbs, from chronic constipation or you know spinal anomalies, they sometimes also have some redundant tissue or these what we call pockets within the vault. So the catheter might actually be in a pocket, and they're irrigating there, 
oh. distally, very low, rather than getting mm-hmm. it into the lumen. Um, we can also see this with kids that have like lower sacral or pelvic floor anomalies because there's compromise to the normal anatomic course there. So it's very important to have like a digital exam to see which way the lumen is coursing and the parents understand that. So really the fix is to bring them back in, observe them placing the catheter, examine the patient with the catheter to ensure that it's in the correct position. um, And then make sure the care team or the patient knows how to position their hand or the catheter and even position the patient to make sure they're appropriately placed so that they're successful. So sometimes we play with some positions or how we put in the catheter. And then once this is accomplished, uh, the colon will hopefully fill with water rather than just filling the rectal vault with water. Mm -hmm. And it usually allows for larger volumes to be tolerated without the balloon coming out. Are there different but, sizes uh, of the are there different sizes of the catheters or is there just one size? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a pediatric size and a standard size catheter, and of course those need to be adjusted as well. So okay. it's um, not always that you start a patient on one catheter and they stay there. So again, you have to reassess and make sure that you're using the appropriate size. So that's an easy fix as well. Okay. Um, but if you have balloon dislodgement or rupture it can also indicate that the lumen is occluded or you have an obstruction with stool. Mm. So in this case, you have to get a good physical exam or imaging to make sure that you rule that out. So this is not uncommon and you want to make sure that you're not dealing with that. Again, this will put them at higher risk for perforation. So you want to always make sure that this, this portion is ruled out. Okay. And then I guess another complaint I hear a lot is that um, kids have like lower abdominal pain or left-sided pain, like with cramping, or sometimes even like nausea with their irrigation. And that can occur for a few reasons as well. So the most important reason is that the water temperature is not correct. Usually it's too cold, so it'll cause some cramping. So easy fix, right? Like check the Mm -hmm the indicator sticker or run the water under um, the faucet so it's the same temperature as your wrist. Um, Or sometimes they're pumping it too fast. So once families get comfortable at home, they also become like super speedy with the irrigation. (laughs) (laughs) How fast can we get this done? (laughs) Yes. And sometimes when we do that, it doesn't um, allow for like the the pressure to appropriately acclimate inside the colon and pull the water up. So mm-hmm. the water will fill mostly in the rectum and those patients will complain of lower abdominal pain, their um, bottoms hurt, um, or sometimes they have very low left-sided pain as well. And that's usually because they're pumping the water in too quickly. Okay, so how fast do you tell them to pump? So we count, we just say, you know, do one 1,000, two 1,000, okay. three 1,000. Four, one thousand instead of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. So that kind of slows them down. So if we teach them the counting or one alligator, whichever. Oh, I like the alligator. Okay, that would slow me. Some down. Some way to slow same. them down. <laughs> okay, so then um, that's two things. What's is there a third thing that you hear a lot of? Yeah. So the balloon popping out, the abdominal pain, and finally, um, the last thing that we hear is that they're still having some incontinence in mm-hmm. between their irrigation. So if that is occurring, it's really important to find out what time of the day or evening they're experiencing that and what time they're doing their irrigations. And again, we review um, how much water they're instilling, if they're having any issues with balloon popping out. We assess to see what kind of stool is coming out. Is it just water that's coming out with irrigations? Actually, it shouldn't just be water, right? Like right. It should have stool material in it. And that tells us how successful they are with their irrigations and how far up their colon were. 
we're potentially getting. And sometimes we go back to imaging to make sure that we're not missing anything um, in the way. But um, typically those issues with incontinence have to do with the, the fact that the irrigations are suboptimal and we need to uh, kind of either fix the regimen or the routine or ensure that we're instilling enough in the colon to empty it out. Okay. And timing of meds, I'm sure, is important as well. Yeah, we play with that a lot with our patients. So um, for the most part, we know when to time our medications. And we try not to give the medications too late in the evening, uh, and especially if we're using a stimulant um, so that they don't have contractions when they're sleeping, for example, and have incontinence at night or early in the morning. Mm -hmm. So those are also some things that we, we adjust as needed. Well, it sounds like then the troubleshooting can be complex, but that it's fixable for the most part. Yeah. And, and I think um, practice makes perfect. So the more you right. do it, the more at ease you are at being able to identify what the issue is. That's good. Okay. So thank you for um, all of that information on transanal irrigation. Um, we know that transanal irrigation has started to become part of bowel management program. Um, there's been some recent articles where it's actually included in the treatment programs. So what are your, just to finish off here, what are your top three keys for success in starting kids off with TAI? Yeah. So my top three success kind of pointers are mm -hmm. to do a clean out one, to do a clean out two, to do a clean out three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you like the clean out. Now, I, love you, the clean I, out. Want, I do want to ask you this though. Do you mean like colonoscopy ready? Like the kids have to be totally cleaned out or is it more of a gentle clean out, making sure just the descending colon's cleaned out or what, how do you, when you say clean out, what does that mean to you? Oh no, we don't play around. It's full. Oh, like, it's full clean out. Excuse me, okay. full bowel clean out, like a colonoscopy. Okay. Um, you really want to make sure that's completed. So you're as successful as possible with these families and these patients and that you have um, the least risk of failure or non-compliance or dropout. So that's super, super important. But in all seriousness, outside of a clean out, um, before you get started, I ensure that I select the right patient. So we talked mm -hmm. about this a lot as well. And I want to make sure my patients have good buy-in and compliance with the regimens um, so that they can be successful and safe uh, using their transanal irrigation system. And probably number three is um, practice makes perfect, both for you as a provider and the patient. So don't give up. If things aren't working, like try to find um, other solutions, be creative, and really think of the history of the patient, their anatomy. Uh, all patients are not created equal, right? Like, as I right. mentioned before, a spina bifida patient might have much different needs than spina bifida patient B. So you really mm -hmm. need to be able to adjust things and um, be flexible with your regimens to be able to get them to success. Well, and don't give up, right? Like this isn't a one-stop stop shop sort of a treatment. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. And that should be set up and, and, and discussed openly up front. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sokolo. It's always so great to have you on. Thank you, Amy, a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us slash professional.